and I don't know whether that makes any sense, but when I think, when when I think, for instance, of Gaddis, um, some of this stuff is very is is very messy and very very hard to read. But but of course, most of what he's writing about are 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 corporations, um, and sort of fake institutions and forgeries and lawsuits and all the kind of smooth, sleek, um, basically, you know, lies stylistically that that we kind of live and move in and and I would say that if I had if I had a stylistic influence it would be more Gaddis than anything else I'm speaking to David Foster Wallace whose most recent book is Brief Interviews with Hideous Men it's published by Back Bay Books um, from Little Brown um, in some way for the writer who, for better or worse, we're characterizing as a John Updike, John Barth, pretty writer. The ability to locate a problem itself had something to do with solving the problem. You could write a seamless kind of prose for this subsequent generation, and perhaps we have to throw out lists or generations, because what you say is true of Gaddis as well, um, especially in the later books when he's following more the syntax of the spoken voice than he is the syntax of beautiful writing. Um, to name the problem does not put the writer above the problem. It locates the writer in the problem. The problem becomes something like the tar baby, the writer gets caught both outside and inside, or more inside than outside, and the book seems like the recording of the process of trying to find an extrication point while suspecting that there is none. This may be what I'm describing as mass or beautiful mass. There's been some sort of change, I think, where... And and I don't I don't know enough sociology, but but I think issues that were fundamentally issues of class for perhaps some some older writers. Um, that is, you know, it, it, it was okay to be a rebel and an experimentalist, but one in the, in a certain sense had to establish one's one's class credentials in order to do so, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that so that while one could subvert certain ideas of, of fiction, that, um, that they, it was certainly going to be pretty, and it, it was going to be able to do all the sort of sensuously gratifying things that the more, quote-unquote, naive fiction could do. Um, and in that sense, you had kind of, you know, you had, you had dukes and earls rebelling in, sort of instead of the rabble. Somewhere along the line, and, and I may be talking more about myself than anybody else, I think, I think what for a long time were issues of class and kind of upper and educated class versus um, uneducated or more blue-collar class. And, and, and these are fluctuations that I think you can see even in the movement from, you know, the quote-unquote founding postmodernists to, you know, the 80s minimalists um, with, with the kind of short sentences and downtrodden characters and kind of trailer park and duplex settings. I, I think... I think somewhere in the late 80s or somewhere, some, at some point when that sort of minimalist fiction began to pass from vogue 
it wasn't that the class questions changed. It was that I think the class questions disappeared. And, and questions that were issues that were fundamentally about, about class and inclusion became more for people like maybe my age and a little younger, questions of, of corporation, um, corporations and consumers and consuming models versus kind of alternative uh, homemade, quote unquote, non non corporate transactions. I don't know if this makes any sort of sense. Where I, I know for me a certain kind of smoothness um, that you could that that you can identify with resolution, easily identified kind of black and white um, heroes and villains. Um, Standard, standardly satisfying endings involving the gratification of romance or, you know, epistemological problems. I associate with corporate entertainment, whose whose agenda is fundamentally financial, whose some some and some of it's some of it's quite good, um, but but its fundamental its fundamental orientation is um, there there's no there's no warmth in it toward the reader or no attempt to involve the reader or the audience in a kind of relationship or interaction. It's a, it's a, it's a transaction of a certain kind of gratification in, wow. exchange for, in exchange for money. You know, you've just filled me with ideas that I want to express some of, um, and this is why I prefer to work without questions, because I'd never thought this before, but I'm responding to you. I think that when you think about it, that Barth, Updike, these are not patrician people. These are people whose acceptance at Harvard in Updike's case or at Johns Hopkins in Barth's came as something of a surprise. But college was going to be, for them, this friendly place that raised them out of the squalor of, in Barth's case, the um, corner sandwich shop father he had, in Updike's case, I don't remember the particular yeah, circumstance. Yeah. And so it was at a time when entering the corporation as represented by the status college in this case seemed like a good, ennobling, friendly thing to do. By countering it, by writing fictions that pointed out the cracks in the system they were even further experiencing what a writer has to experience. You have to be against what spawned you, but they were not against it to the extent that it didn't seem at that time inimical. We're at a point now, I don't think we anymore know offhand what college Bill Volman or David Foster Wallace went to Dennis Cooper. We do know where Brett went, but maybe he's part of an earlier minimalist generation there, um, because it doesn't matter anymore. The college did not ennoble you or raise you out of any muck or change your language into the language of the ruling class. And I think you're absolutely right. What's happening here in a lot of the work I'm caring about right now is what I'm calling the mess is looking for a language that one can use without deception. And, and you're trying not to use the corporate voices because they've revealed themselves too clearly 
as not our friends, yeah. but the voices of a kind of um, patristic culture, or a numbing culture, or an anesthetizing culture. Yeah, I don't know. I would just, I would, I, I would just use cold or warm. I, this may be generational. For me, the warm business. Happiness was a warm puppy, or happiness was a warm gun, but warm started to seem like something that was too um, cooey and sweet, and a whole generation of writers turned as a um, antidote to coldness, feeling that it wouldn't be sloppily um, used against one, that the ability to melt a heart, the consequence of warmth. Um, would not be the heart melting quality was always the um, artillery of what we used to consider to be the corporate right. um, logo. So why warm cold as poles here? Yeah, we're using them in different ways. Yeah, I mean, you know when I was when I was a dutiful little student in my writing classes, I do know that the great the great odium, the great thing that you didn't do was was the was melodrama, you know, or tearjerker stuff. And mm-hmm. and and so to that extent, I get I get what you're talking about. I guess I mean cold in terms of you know is the fundamental transaction an artistic transaction, which is I think involves a gift. Or is it fundamentally an economic transaction, which which, which I regard as as cold? I, I think I think television, commercial films, um, commercial top forty music, some of which make no mistake I put in my time watching, is these are all very cold media. Even though they're they're probably they're probably the only place in any kind of art where you know melodrama is still extensively used. The coldness I'm talking about is you know it's not. None of this is none of this is for you. <laughs> I mean, what it is is to get you to get you to like it enough so that certain rewards accrue to the, the producers and sponsors of, of of these things. And now, even though very easy to say, right? Because now now I'm going to contrast my own work with this. Although you know, both books that you've talked about in this half hour are published by Little Brown, which is owned by Time Warner, which is now I guess owned by AOL. You know. Um, um, there does seem to me to be one of the reasons why people, I think, react to certain things like alternative music or or poetry slams or kind of you know makeshift art that you see in parks and stuff. Some of which is you know kind of ugly. It's but it but it's warm. One senses that 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 the transaction is for lack of a better term, spiritual, and it's between people, and that and that economics and sales are not at the absolute fundament of it. What occurs to me as you speak is that in a way that I didn't know when I started this, that when I got Dave Edgar's book, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, I didn't isolate that phrase, staggering genius. Um, but you're helping me to do so because it occurs to me that for a whole period in fiction a thing that we didn't want was genius genius belonged to the 
Nabokov, Joyce, and then by extension, Barth, Pinchon, Category. And suddenly, during the years of minimalism, we had Carver and others who, no matter how human an artist we talked to them as, it, it didn't have genius in that encyclopedia's worth of knowledge sense. Now suddenly there's the emergence, I think, with a lot of people's work, your own among them, um, but with Volman and Danielewski and all sorts of the return of this genius writer, but the emphasis on, say, staggering genius. In other words, as opposed to perfect genius or inviolable genius or heartless genius, that maybe the staggering part is what reestablishes it as human, as non-corporate, as opposed to the corporate. Can you comment? Yeah. You know, I guess, I guess, I guess the thing, the thing that occurs to me is that talking about, you know, quote unquote, the genius writer and the not, and, you know, I would say that Carver's a genius, but his persona was, was anti-genius, I agree. But, but, you know, what about, what about readers? I, I think, you know, this may be goopy of me, but I think one of the differences, most of the writers I really, I really respect and 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 know and and whose whose work is important to me seem to have a very high estimation of of the, of the of the reader and to require genius to, to require genius as a criterion for good reading as well as for good writing and and this may be this may be part of this mess that you're talking about but it also may be that the kind of genius we're talking about here is is the, is the genius of negotiating the mess and putting the things together and being able to decide whether something resolves or not and it just doesn't seem to me you, you're right there's a certain there's a certain kind of imperial quality to some of the quote-unquote geniuses you mentioned before that I, I myself just don't associate with with any of the any of the writers who are doing powerful work today. Um, I, some of them are, I think, involved in, in transactions requiring genius, but it's, it, it seems to be, to, be, to be sort of required on both sides. And the thing I like about that is that, is that one of the things for me that, that, uh, that distinguishes the smooth and the facile and the corporate is that it, it, it feels to me, despite, despite melodrama and despite good comedy, that there's a kind of cool contempt for the reader or the audience or a, or a, a low estimation mm-hmm. of the reader and audience's um, g- willingness to do any sort of work or withstand any sort of discomfort. Um, and, and, and some of the, some of the fiction I'm familiar with on, on the list that you've prepared seems to me to be operating in a very different way. Thank you for joining me, David. Thank you. Now what should I say in response? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, like, thank you, or would you, something droll? I don't know. Um, uh, well, you know, I, I think this is perfect. What about something collegial like a pleasure as always? <laughs> perfect. Okay. My, pleasure as always. <laughs> my associate producer is Melinda Siegel. The engineer is Mario Diaz. Special production assistance from Alan Howard with J.C. Swadek. I've been talking to 
David Foster Wallace from his home in Illinois. And so the sounds are not the usual clear as a bell sounds of bookworm, but I think the interest of the conversation justifies the difficulty of the engineering. I'm Michael Silverblatt. Join me again next week on Bookworm. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is made available to the public radio system by SAS, a satellite service of KCRW Santa Monica. Cassette copies of this and other bookworm programs are available. For ordering information, call KCRW at 310-450-5183. make you laugh and say, books tell you everything. They're your treasure, friends in prose and rhyme. Now with book, of the mouse, mouse. Stay tuned in and help support the next generation of KCRW radio. Go to KCRW.com and click on Join.